If you are new uh, with us here at Cross Training, welcome to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're finishing off chapter 2 tonight. We're going to be in 14 verses, and uh, we're still near the front end of this book. Ecclesiastes is kind of like an alarm clock. You don't want to hear it, but you need to hear it. And so hopefully um, for us, it's a wake-up call. And uh, it's hard to hear, but it's good stuff. And it might uh, save us from delusion and, uh, and despair even though it is filled uh, with all kinds of depressing stuff. Now, we see, um, we call this series, we call it uh, Jesus is Hope. And again, if you're new with us, just a, a quick synopsis that uh, most books, especially in the New Testament, paint portraits of Jesus. This is a silhouette of Jesus. It's not that Jesus is hope because of his presence in Ecclesiastes as much as his absence. And so Solomon paints a picture of everything under the sun. So when I talk tonight, it's going to be really depressing. And you're going to think, wow, this is partly because Ryan's a depressing guy and partly because this book is depressing. And you need to know that it's all leading to something. It's leading to a, a great hope. And so to be true to the book, we've got to be kind of depressed as we read it. There are nuggets of hope within it, but it's more of, of what it doesn't contain that gives us hope. And so as you walk through this tonight with me, um, just know this is everything under the sun. This is life on earth apart from God. And so without God in your life, without the gospel, without Jesus, um, Life is pretty hopeless, and Solomon uh, calls it like it is. He calls it like it is. And so let me, let me start um, with a theme for tonight to kick off the depression. We, um, we're going to be talking about the waiting room of death, which is life, <laughs> which is life. Uh, as we walk through these verses tonight, you're going to see Solomon essentially paint the picture of life this way. Let me see if a little bit of an analogy will help. Um, lately, uh, all the schools around here finished um, finished school. At least most of them have. Uh, do you remember when you were a kid, the last day of school? Did you like the last day of school? Some of you, maybe. Depending on what you had to look forward to, right? Most people on the last day of school don't do much, do they? Teachers know. Like, you don't, you don't throw a bunch of stuff at the kids. There's not going to be a bunch of tests, a bunch of presentations, a bunch of projects due because... It's the last day of school. It's filled with, with uh, fun days and movies and field trips and all kinds of things like that, right? You probably aren't very productive on the last day of school. Or how about this? How about the last day of work? Any of you ever put your two weeks notice in and quit a job and had to walk through those two weeks? And at the last day, how productive were you that day? Not, not much. Some of you are guilty right now because you're, you're feeling horrible because you're like, I skipped my last day, didn't you? We all know someone, right? Why? Why is that? That there's not much productivity, there's not much meaning in that last day of school or work. It's because in life, when there's no opportunity for reward or awards, there's no motivation to do much. There's no motivation to do much. And Solomon's big idea tonight is why put a bunch of effort into something today that won't be here tomorrow? I put a bunch of effort in, into something today that won't be here tomorrow. You see, life is a lot like the last day of school. Those who see the end coming, the reality that we're going to die. Stop and think and say, what am I doing here? And they live differently. 
when they're focused on that question, what, we're going to die, and so what am I doing here? They tend to live different. Now, the Bible's clear that all have sinned, and uh, sin equals death, and therefore all will die. The question is not if, but when. And so some of you might naturally be a little melancholy, some of you might be um, naturally just thinking about death. Maybe your career uh, involves uh, walking people to death in some way, form, or fashion some, some way. Others just try to block it out and say, let's just try to get the most out of life and we'll deal with death when it comes, right? Maybe that's you. But either way, Solomon's saying, we're all going to die. We're all going to die and we've got to face that. We've got to face it. And the bottom line is the way that you view the end of life will dictate and determine how you live all of life. And so there's hope. There's hope because for those in Jesus, we realize that death is not the end, but death becomes a doorway. And even though you can't find meaning in life apart from God, uh, you can in Jesus. And it changes the way that you live every day. And so... Uh, I want you to think about tonight um, your jobs, your careers, what you do, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a CEO or somewhere in between, um, and see if we can add a little bit of meaning to it tonight. So we're going to be talking about wisdom, work, and we're going to see whether any of it's worthwhile tonight. Let's jump in. We're going to stop three times tonight. We're going to talk about wisdom in one chunk, work in another chunk, and then we're going to give you some hope. We all need some hope. So verses 12 through 16, if you've got a Bible, feel free to open it up. We're going to finish out Ecclesiastes 2 tonight. Solomon says in verse 12, So I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness. For who can do this better than I, the king, right? He's got time. He's got resources. We've talked about that. He's the richest, wisest man anyone knew. I thought wisdom is better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. How many of you would rather be wise than foolish? A few of you? Okay, right? Because wisdom is just naturally better than foolishness, just like good over evil, light over dark. For the wise can see where they're going, but fools walk in the dark. Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Both will die. Both will die. So I said to myself, since I will end up the same as the fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? What's so wise about wisdom? This is all so meaningless. Remember, that's the theme. This is all so, it's all vanity. It's all a vapor. It's all chasing the wind. For the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. You guys encouraged yet? This is good, right? Well, let's stop and talk about that. First thing we see, is there are two roads, but there's one destination. There's two roads, but there's one destination. Now, finals week just got done. What if, what if you knew a college student or you were a college student, and in the midst of studying and cramming and getting ready for their finals, you came and you brought a nice shake from Brahms, or maybe you brought them a Dr. Pepper, and you said, you know, I know you're stressed out. I know you got a lot going on. I just want to get you some chocolate, some Dr. Pepper. I want you feeling good. And then you just gave them a little note, and you just, you just want to encourage them, and they're like, oh my gosh, this week is so stressful, it's horrible, I'm putting so much energy into getting good grades because I want to be smart, I want to be wise, I want to go 
and do something with my life. And you're like, I know that. And I just want to encourage you. And they slip that little note out of the, the candy that you gave them or whatever. And, and they open it up and they see Ecclesiastes 2. And then you write at the bottom, just remember everything you're doing this week is worthless. How do you think that would go over? Probably not real well, right? Not real well. But that's kind of what Solomon's saying. Apart from God, it's all pretty worthless. Now, he's saying, ultimately, more than wisdom, listen, here was my game plan. I thought because I was the wisest person alive that I would benefit from my wisdom. I would be the smartest guy in the room. I would have the most knowledge. I would be the wisest guy. And that would somehow benefit me in life more than other people, right? Isn't that the idea? Isn't that the idea? Because you, you and I know that we, um, really everywhere in the world, but certainly in America, we exalt knowledge, don't we? If you're a parent, you have told your kids, Go to school, get good grades. Why? So you can get a degree, so you can graduate, so you can go and get a good job. Why? I don't know. I don't know, because that's just what we do. That's why we love living in America, is because you can go to good schools, you can get degrees, you can get knowledge, you can get wisdom, you can chase after it, because we just assume that wisdom and knowledge and being smart is really, really good. And with God, it might be. Apart from God, he's saying, listen, here's what you all need to know. Just because it's the popular path might not make it the purposeful path. Just because it's the popular path might not make it the purposeful path. And so you stop and you think, what are we doing? What are we doing? He says there's two two paths. You can be wise or you can be foolish. Now it says, here's the difference. The wise can see where they're going, but the fools walk in the dark. There's a Hebrew word for see here, and it actually means seat or throne. The big idea is that there's uh, uh, someone in authority, this is the wise, who is able to see clearly where they're going. They see, hey, death is coming. I want, though, in an optimistic way, to make something of my life, to benefit myself, to benefit others. And so I'm going to live in such a way that benefits me. I see where I'm going, and I'm going to dictate the steps. That's ultimately what the wise will do. And then the foolish are blind. And they say, you know what, we're not going to necessarily pursue meaning in life. We're just going to try to avoid it and just get through this thing. And we're going to be blinded and just push through. We're walking in the dark. Just get to the end of this. He says, I assumed that wisdom was much better than foolishness. But then I realized we both die. And that's sad. You see, you and I, we grow up hearing stories like the turtle and the hare. You remember that story, right? The turtle and the hare. And we learn about consistency and being steady. And one of them goes really fast but doesn't finish it. And so then the other one goes slow and steady and finishes it. And we're like, oh, look at what you can learn about life. There's so much in that, right? And Solomon says, yeah, but they both die. So who cares? And you're like, that's depressing. That's depressing. So wisdom has value, but ultimately it's just another road to the same destination.
What about y'all with money? You want to be wise, not foolish with money, right? Some of you, you got spreadsheets with your budget and you make sure that everything is paid on time and you got plenty of money to do what you need to do and, and you're thrifty and you're smart and you want to get your finances in a row so you can get a good credit score. And then you know people who are foolish with their money, right? They don't care about budgets and, and they just pay when they can. And if they can't, then they're going to have debt collectors coming after them. And Solomon's saying, who cares? Both of you have to pay your bills, you have to pay your debts, and you have to pay your taxes. Solomon's saying if there's two cars headed towards a crash and one of them is going like this and they're just cruising along and they're blind, they're walking in the dark, they don't see it coming, but then the other one does, and yet for that split second they see, oh no, I'm going to hit them. You ever hit a deer and at the last second you knew you're going to hit that deer? And you're like, can't do nothing about it. And you just hit that deer. And Solomon's saying, one of them doesn't see it coming. The other one does see it coming, but neither can change it. It's not that wisdom is completely without value. But Solomon's saying, it's just not enough. There's more to life than getting an education, getting degrees, and getting good jobs. There's got to be more to life than that. There's got to be more to life than that. Now, when we talk about wisdom in our culture, wh- what does America esteem? What do we exalt? Like, what, are the, what do we say, you know what, this is the smartest. Obviously, we've got philosophers, we've got counselors, we've got scholars, we've got all kinds of people who are smart, right? I, I, would, I would throw out there, um, even like scientists, Man, we love scientists, don't we? We just assume that scientists are right. We let them write our textbooks. We let them tell us the truth about the world. And it's not necessarily that what they say is true or false, because I'm sure some of what they say is true and some of what they say is false. But again, it depends on which scientist you're talking about. But what's laughable to me is the trust that you see not only them, but all of us putting in their wisdom. Like, what are, what are you going to find? Well, we found some fossils, and we found this new process to see how old this is, and we found this, and now we know this. What? Well, so we can find the origin of this, and so we know how we go. So who cares? So then we can find maybe a little bit of meaning. You ain't going to find meaning? What? Apart from God? It's not a matter of truth. It's the destination. And their destination is the same as everyone else's doesn't matter how right or wrong they are. Apart from God, you got nothing. You got nothing. So if you sit back and you read this and you say, okay, great, this is depressing. So scholars are going to die, philosophers, scientists, engineers, everyone ain't going to make it. Why even bother? Well, there's several reasons why wisdom is valuable, and I won't get into all of them. God obviously tells us. we got books like Proverbs. Wisdom is good. And there's a wisdom of God that's different than the wisdom of this world. And Solomon had that wisdom. Where did his wisdom come from? Man, he encountered God in a dream. He said, I want to take care of your people. That's a big thing to discern right and wrong. And he says, oh, I'm going to make you rich, but I'm going to make you wise. I'm going to make you really, really wise. It was from God. 
Here's one reason why I think wisdom is really, really good on earth. Amongst many, but I'll just point this out for the sake of time, is the pause. The pause. It it makes you stop. It's kind of like how a stomach ache is grace to the glutton because it makes them stop and say, don't go any further. You've eaten too much. Wisdom is grace to the person who says, you know what? I'm looking around, and apart from God, I see that this world is a really bad investment. I should invest elsewhere. And if the Holy Spirit does a work in their life, and they hear the word of God, then by the grace of God, they might start looking towards the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of this world. And so when wisdom makes someone stop and come to the end of themselves and the end of this broken world and say, maybe I should look elsewhere, oh, wisdom's got value. Again, only God can draw them to the next kingdom, the better kingdom. But wisdom's got some value. Let's talk about work. This will put a little pep in your step. How many of you came in here today with some frustrations with your day job? Anybody? A couple of you? All right. I want to work wherever all these people work because they seem to be doing okay over here. Verse 17 through 23 will go. So I came to hate life because everything done under the sun is so troubling. Listen to that. I came to hate life. How many times have you heard, especially young pups, say, you know, the Bible just isn't relevant. (laughs) Just isn't relevant. I can't understand it and I can't relate. Read 17 again. If you're over the age of seven, you've said, I hate life. At some point, at some point, you've been so frustrated, you say, I hate this. I'm frustrated. This isn't going well. Everything under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. And I came to hate all my hard work on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. Verse 20. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. (laughs) Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. Ever felt that way? Everything, what am I doing this for? Got to leave this to someone else. This too is meaningless. It's a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? You ready? Here's, here's this. It's going to get good, right? What do you get for all your hard work? There you go. Drum roll, please. Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief, and even at night their minds cannot rest. It's all meaningless. How are you feeling about life right now? This is... Ecclesiastes is not a cure for depression. That's for sure. Let's talk about the curse of work. The curse of work. You ever feel like your job's a curse? (laughs) Well, the Bible might just affirm that. So we're talking about everyone. Whether you're a CEO or a cashier, whether you are a business owner or a volunteer, If you work in life, and we all work doing different things, this applies to you. So that pretty much includes all of us. Now, again, you and I get consumed by work. We emphasize work. Where does most of your stress come from? 
if you just had to do a pie chart in your mind? Work. Where outside of sleeping does most of your time go? Work, right? Where do you set most of your goals? A lot of times, work. Why do we celebrate graduations? So people can work. I read one one article uh, that said the most likely people in the world to commit suicide are 44-year-old white males who are unemployed. A little unemployed thing probably has a big part of that, don't you think? Now, there's such a large population of people who work, 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 and then stop and say, what am I doing? That we've actually categorized it as midlife crisis. You guys have heard about midlife crisis. Solomon's having a bit of a midlife crisis. He's saying, I put my effort into working, thinking maybe this will bring me true satisfaction. Maybe if I just get my dream job, it will be amazing. And now he's telling us, hey, stop asking what your dream job is because your dream job might just be your nightmare if it's apart from God. That's the key words, right? If it's apart from God. So it's not like this, all this stuff is worthless and bad. But apart from God, it can't truly satisfy you. You can't find your joy in it, although you might be able to enjoy it. Verse 20. I'm going to break this into three kind of subsections for us. Verse 18, the beginning of it, and verse 20 really give us um, the origin of the curse. Solomon is telling us, I devoted myself to work. He said in the beginning of verse 18, I came to hate all my hard work on earth. So that's the shift. That's the shift to the topic of work. And then in verse 20, he says, again, I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. You ever been there? See, here's the thing. When you and I were created, work was a good thing. Work was a good thing. If you go way back to Genesis chapter 1 and you read verse 26, this is before sin entered the world, when we are walking with God, it says, and we call this the cultural mandate, that all the birds of the air and the fish in the sea and all the animals, the plants, everything, they will be under the dominion of who? The people in this room, mankind. So in other words, God said, I'm giving you a job. There will be things that will have to submit to you and obey you, and you will take care of them. Right? So if you've ever said to yourself, man, I don't care about this world, I don't care about the climate, I don't care about any of this stuff, you've got to go back and read Genesis 1. He said, you should care about this stuff. You should care about this stuff because I'm entrusting it with you. And then in chapter 2, it says that he created this garden. We know it is the Garden of Eden. And he says that he put man in there to work it. So you were given authority and you were given a job. And at this point in history, it was good. It was good. Hence, pre-fall. So when you're walking with God, work is a good thing. Don't miss that. But then something happens. Man sins. And the curse in Genesis 3 says that the ground is cursed because of you. 
This world is broken. And then it says part of the curse that you and I have is that we're going to work, especially dudes. Gals, you're going to work in, in, in childbearing, and you're going to want your husband, but you're always going to have issues with your husband. And dudes, you're going to go work the ground, and you're going to be sweating. You're going to be frustrated. And there's going to be thorns. And there's going to be thistles. And you're going to find that you're going to work this ground. And you're going to eat it. And you're going to work it all the days of your life until you who came from dust will return to dust. The dirt always wins. So work was a good thing, and then because of sin, it kind of lost some of its meaning, a little bit of its value. And you and I feel that on a daily basis. How many of you have ever worked a job that you just hated? Okay. You experienced part of the curse. You experienced part of the curse. Maybe it was mindless. That's the curse. Maybe it was super hard and exhausting. Welcome to the curse. Maybe it was boring. That's the curse. And then what? You leave that job to find another job just to find out it's got different issues, but just as many issues. That's the curse. Welcome to the curse. You're fighting the curse. You say, why in the world does God curse work? Why does he curse work? Does he hate us? No. Nobody wants us to experience with our jobs what he experiences with us. Because in Genesis 1, when he said, you have dominion over all these things, this is your job, and then sin entered the world, you and I, for all of our days, no matter what your job is, will experience frustrations with the things under us. You, 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 you don't believe me. Mamas, you're working with your kids, and you say, why won't they obey me? Why won't they obey me? It's the curse. Home builders, like, man, I can't get this perfectly level. It's not perfectly flush. It's not perfectly square. And even if I do, it's going to settle all funky and the foundations are going to be cracked in 20 years and it won't be perfect. Business owners, entrepreneurs say, I'm trying to start something. I'm trying to do something and things just won't fall in line. Ugh, I'm cursed. You manage people, <laughs> you know that's cursed. You go to work and they say, you know, we don't really like you as a manager. You know what? We're going to be nice to your face. No, we're going to talk bad about you. Hey, I love you, but I'm not going to show up to work tomorrow. You know, and like there's just issues, you're experiencing the curse. And you say, why? Why do the things under me not obey me and rebel against me and not fall in line with me? Why? And God says, that's what it's like with you. Welcome to my world. So the way that you feel with your work tomorrow when you're frustrated because things don't fall in line is the way that God has felt with us when we rebel against him, when we don't submit to him, when we say, oh, you're supposed to be over us, but we're going to do our own thing for a bit. This isn't meant to depress you. It's meant to give you a greater glimpse of the grace of God, the gospel, and to be able to understand God just a little bit more. So when you are frustrated at work, let it draw you to repentance instead of just frustration. Not only that, there's more bad news in the fact that you look at our culture right now and we try to fix work. We try to make work more meaningful. We, we try to get more out of work. We want work to fill that void in us. That's why the most common, one of the most common sins in the church today is the rejection of the Sabbath. 
You say, who doesn't want to rest? Americans, that's who. You set up a culture that says, capitalism, go get it. And they say, bye-bye, Sabbath. We're going to try to find something meaningful and work. That's why more and more and more, you got families gathered around the dinner table, but parents got their phones, they're checking their emails, they're doing their things. we got devices all over us, and devices help us to do what? They help us to work when we shouldn't be working. That's why people who retire often get another job. You ever seen that? I'm working, working, working to retire. A few months at home. Hey, how's it been going? Well, I started working at Walmart as a greeter. It's like, but you are an engineer. What are you doing at Walmart as a greeter? I just needed to get out of the house. How's my grandpa? He wasn't an engineer, but he worked in the military. Did his thing for all these years, then lived out the rest of his life. After a few months of sitting at home in retirement, decided I'm just going to be a greeter at Walmart. Not because I need the money, not because I like the job, because I just need to work. Why? Because the desire for work will always be in you, and yet work will never satisfy you. And so it goes on and on and on. And then you see even more in verse 19 and 21 that you can't take stuff with you. This is Solomon's, he's just frustrated. And he says, and so I got to leave to others everything I earned. And who can tell whether the people after me will be wise or foolish? Like I don't have control of my stuff. It's going to go to someone else and they're going to do whatever they want with it. How meaningless. He says again, he says, some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, but then they leave the fruit, they leave the blessings of all their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless. It's a great tragedy. You see this in nature all the time. You watch the Discovery Channel, you see a cheetah or a lion go out there and make a big kill, and they're panting, and they're going crazy, and then what's next? You see a bunch of hyenas come, and they just take it away, and then the cheetah just walks back to his tree, and you're like, that's depressing. And, and Solomon's saying, that's you. That's a microcosm of everything you're working for in life. Solomon's saying, you guys are like people at a beach who are building sandcastles. And you build a beautiful sandcastle, put all that work into it, and yet the waves of death will come to all of us and wipe away your sandcastle. And then you'll come, someone else will come, start another one, see your foundation, build on it a little bit until theirs is wiped away. They don't get to actually enjoy it. So this is the cycle. You and I go to school. Why? Because we want to work hard. Why? Because we want to get a job, a good job. Why? To work hard. Why? So we can get stuff. Why? So we can go back to work to pay for our stuff that we can't enjoy. And you say, I need a better job. Let's go to school and get a better degree. Why? So I can make more money and get more stuff that I can't enjoy so that I can go back to school to get a better job to get more stuff and I can't keep up with the lifestyle I created. And so all of us become slaves to the lives that we made and the prisons that we made for ourselves. Is is Solomon singing a song that anyone's familiar with? Is any of this clicking? And most of us, if we're honest, don't stop enough because we're so busy in our lives that we don't reflect on our lives. And so we just go with the flow until something happens. Because somewhere deep inside, the enemy has deceived us and he's just whispering, somehow it's all going to pay off. 
somehow it's all going to pay off. Surely everyone wouldn't be moving in this direction if there wasn't a big payoff. Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to. And we say, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know why I'm just working, working, working. But you leave it just so someone else who didn't earn it can have it. You ever been to an estate sale? Like the kind where they pretty much just open up the people's homes. Maybe like a little old lady, little old man die. They got like a farmhouse or something. And it's so weird. You show up and, and you're like, this is weird. Like I'm walking into their lives. It's like they just, just left all this. Feels awkward, doesn't it? Like this is your stuff. I shouldn't have your stuff. You guys built your own little kingdom out here. And like now we're just picketing. <laughs> we're just looting your stuff. You ever been to a garage sale? and you saw like a really good deal, you're like, ooh, that recliner, that was like 400 bucks, and they got it for four bucks here. You're like, this is crazy. You're thinking, they're foolish. And so then you're giving them their four bucks, and you're like, so why are you guys selling this? Oh, my husband bought that for his man cave, but he's working nights now, and he works 60, 70 hours a week, so he hadn't even really been able to enjoy it. And then we decided to make the man cave another kid's room. We had more kids, so we're selling it. And you're just like, <laughs> you're stupid. I'm getting all your stuff. Like, you've worked for this, and now I get it. When, when I was um, 16 years old, me and my buddy Rusty, he lived way out in the boondocks, right? And, and uh, one of the K-State football players, a wide receiver at that time, had given uh, his car to Rusty's dad. And Rusty's dad now had this little Dodge Omni, like a 1980 Dodge Omni. If you don't know what a Dodge Omni is, it's kind of like a shoebox with wheels. It's just just a, a loaf of bread with wheels. There's not much to it. And and he gave him this car, and his dad didn't know what to do with it because it cost like 50 bucks, right? This this football player this just needed a few bucks, and so he gave his car away. And so we were sitting out there in the boondocks one day, and we said, let's let's drive it. And we got it running, and we start spinning around. Of course, there's no one around. We're down on gravel roads just doing whatever, and we're having some fun. And eventually, after a couple hours go by, and we haven't seen anyone, we're on this road, and, and there's just fields all around us, and there's a little, like, 10-foot kind of little hill in the road. And so we went over it, like, going 40, 50 miles an hour. We realized, whoa, when you get to the top of it, it's kind of like a little ride. Like, this is interesting. Let's turn around. Let's do this again. And we stopped way at the beginning of this thing. We say, let's just, I said, just go as fast as you can. Like, we got one shot. Let's just, just see what happens. So he floors that thing. We're going as fast as that little thing will go. And we hit that hump again. And we launch into the air like a NASA rocket. Two feet, right? And, and <laughs> when we hit the ground, like fireworks from the bottom of that thing, all of the fluids just go like, I don't know what fluids all came out, but all of them, it rolled about a hundred yards and then it just died. And we looked at each other and we were like, whoa, that was awesome. <laughs> and it was like 95 degrees out and we just got out, left it in the middle of the road and just walked through fields to someone's random house and called our mom to pick us up. I have no idea what happened to the car. It's there. You say, why are you telling us this? 
Because the next time you go and buy that new car and you're thinking, this is what gives me satisfaction and meaning, I want you to pause when they're handing you the keys and think of a 16-year-old Ryan Booth who 20 years from now is going to be launching your car off of some cliff like like a rocket just to see the fluids explode like fireworks. Everything you own, all of your stuff will be trashed by someone else at some point in time. The house you love right now, your dream house, will one day be abandoned, more than likely. That necklace you got that you love, that ring that your grandma got, that you're like, this passed down generation after generation, someone's going to pawn that off someday. I had a dishwasher. It was great last week. It was, our, it, it was our dishwasher. I sold it for 25 bucks today for someone who's putting it in a rental. They said, well, I was going ca- to put a curtain over the, where the dishwasher goes. Then I saw yours for 25 bucks on buy, sell, trade. I'm just like, last week, that was my good dishwasher. We found a good deal on another one. And like, I couldn't even give this thing away almost. Solomon's saying, that's all of us. That's all of us. And to top it off, it's going to frustrate you like crazy. He says in verses 22 and 23, so what do people get for all this? Your back's going to hurt. You're not going to be able to sleep at night and you're going to cry. (laughs) Welcome to life. That's what you get. This is miserable. Amen. Amen. Before I give you a little more hope, let me give you just a little little bump in the hope meter here. There is a work that does matter, a kingdom work here on earth, that when you invest in, it's not so much about what you're going to leave behind for others as much as it's who you're going to take with you to the next kingdom, to the kingdom of God. And so I want you to look at your life and not just be depressed at your job, but ask yourself, what am I doing this week that has eternal value? When you go home to your kids and you say, you know what, let's talk about Jesus. Let's open the Bible and let's talk about it. has eternal value. When you see someone that you don't want to love, but you go and love them in the name of Jesus, it has eternal value. When you go to work tomorrow and you say, okay, I'm not just going to be depressed about this, but I'm going to come with hope and meaning knowing I'm a missionary here. God has made me a Christian and Christians are missionaries and I'm going to have a whole new focus. I just want to reach the people here and love them that has eternal value. And you can do that all day, every day. Last but not least, all right, let's start turning this up upwards a little bit. I can't leave you. I can't leave you like that. Verse 24 through 26. So I decided, so here's his conclusion, that there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? That's That's crucial. Now we're talking about not just eating and drinking, but we're talking about doing something with God, right? Eating and drinking is not just literal. It's it's a metaphor for the fruits, the blessings of everything in life that God has given you. It's from God. The gifts of God can't be disconnected from the, the giver. It's about his presence. Verse 26, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes away 
excuse me, takes the wealth away and gives it to those who please him. This too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Last thing we see, God's presence, our purpose. Now let's hit verse 26 real quick. What is he saying in here? Now we know that there are sinners who go to their graves rich. So he's not speaking literally in the sense that everyone who's a sinner, which would be all of us, um, they will ultimately, before they die, get all their stuff taken and given to people who like God. He's not saying that, but what he's saying is this. Those who, in context of this, those who seek God, God blesses. Not necessarily materially, but he blesses. And those who don't seek God, well, their rewards are only on earth and they're temporary, and ultimately they'll be taken away. It doesn't go well for those who don't seek God. So, in a nutshell, that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. So, what do we do? Well, to sum up what we've been talking about tonight, you can't spend all your time trying to figure out life with your own wisdom. That don't work. And on the flip side, you don't want to spend all of your life like a fool trying to avoid meaning in life because that doesn't work either. And you don't want to try to try to find all your satisfaction and joy in your work and the things of life because that won't give you satisfaction either. But when you find your joy in Christ, then you can actually enjoy the things Christ has given you. That's the big idea. That's the big idea. When you find your joy in Jesus, then you can have a healthy perspective towards all the blessings and gifts that he has given you. You don't have to feel guilty if you have a good job. You don't have to feel guilty if you've got a good family. You don't have to feel guilty about the things we've been talking about. But when you have Christ as the priority, when it's not just Jesus one and then everything else two, three, four, but it's Jesus alone, and then through him I will have gospel-centered glasses to see properly the rest of my life, my employment, my retirement, my family, everything, then everything now has added value. Everything has meaning when you start with Christ. I, um, I learned a long time ago when Tara and I first got married. Actually, Mike back here officiated our wedding. Good job, Mike. Um, I found out early, especially when we were called to ministry, that we weren't going to live where I wanted to. That, like, my dream home is somewhere out in the country in a state not named Kansas. And I realized, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to have to give up some of these things that I desired. And I was willing to do that. And God has taken us from Virginia to Nebraska to Utah to all throughout Kansas And even now, as we live three blocks from this building in a little cracker box, I'm not living in my dream home, in my dream state. And guess what? I am more than okay with that. Because you find out, hopefully, that it's not about what you do or where you go as much as it's about who you're with. And I know, with Tara, I'm willing to go wherever she is, and whatever we do will be better when she's with me. I don't care if we go to Walmart shopping or if we move to the boondocks. I don't care what we're doing together. It's going to be better because I just like to be around her. I just like to be with my boy and my wife. Family and marriage is a microcosm of our relationship with God. 
you find out, you know what, I'd rather go somewhere I don't want to be doing something I don't want to do, but if that's God's will and God's going to be with me, oh, I'll take that any day. Only I'll be where I do want to go, doing what I do want to do with him forever in heaven, and I want to bring people with me. I can't save them, only Jesus can, but I'll do whatever he asked me to to be a part of his plan. Do everything in your life outside of sin one of two ways, with God or apart from God. And I think sometimes Christians believe because I have faith in God that when I go to work, I'm doing this with God. And and because I have faith in God when I'm parenting, I'm doing this with God. And yet so many of us, we see a lack of God's presence manifest in our lives and therefore a lack of God's power manifest in our lives because his power always follows his presence. And some of us might believe in him and be filled with his Holy Spirit, but if we're honest, we're running on fumes. And as Paul says, as you're filled with wine, also you can be filled with the Spirit. So we're sealed with the Spirit, but some of us are just running on fumes. And if I said, how does the presence of God manifest in your life? Are you experiencing it in a tangible way? Not that we need to look for some emotional, incredible experience in Christianity. But let's be honest, most of us aren't there anyway. (laughs) We're on the flip side. Like, I don't, I don't know that I experience God's presence at all. But where God's presence is, everything will ultimately have purpose. Invite God into the workplace and you say, God, you want me here? I need some purpose here. You say, God, walk with me. You wake up and you say, God, lead me today. Show me what to say. Show me what to do. I want, I want to abide in you. I want to be with you. I want to talk with you. I'm going to focus on you. All of a sudden, your job has more enjoyment because you're not finding your joy in it, but in Christ. It has more meaning because you're not finding your meaning and purpose in it, but in Christ. And he's with you, and he's saying, okay, we can go anywhere and do anything together. You're going to love this a lot more than if you were doing this on your own. The number one determining factor when it comes to your contentment with whatever career you have in life, will never be the title or position you're in or the company you work for or the city you live in, but who's with you? If God's with you, you can be content anywhere. That's why you see in Acts chapter 5, when they're persecuted and they get released from jail, they say, the disciples, we counted ourselves worthy, pure pleasure to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. Two chapters later, you see Stephen preaching to him, getting stoned and beat up. And as he's dying, looks up to heaven and says, Father, don't hold their sin against them. What makes a man say that? Because you can be anywhere doing anything outside of sin. And you can find contentment and power in the presence of God. I'll, uh, I'll, I've recommended in the past, and I, I wouldn't do this on a Sunday morning necessarily, but we can do it here. I w- if you haven't read a book called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, he's an old monk. It's about this big, 40, 50 pages. He's an old boy who lived a lot of his life without knowing the presence of God. And then when he started to experience the presence of God, it changed everything. 
They couldn't understand how in the monastery he would be jumping up and down, doing dishes and in the kitchen, and he was so passionate. And he, at one point, says in this book, he says that I just cried out as he's doing dishes in the kitchen, God, I've had so much of you, I can't handle anymore. Give this to the others around me. Gosh, they probably looked at him like he was crazy. But he learned to connect with God in a way. And through Jesus, you obviously have access to the Father all the time. And he connected with him in a way in his daily life that blew him away. Christians in America need more of that. We need more of that. So, ultimately, we don't have to live life like it's the last day of school because death isn't the end. But through Jesus, death is a doorway. And there's a kingdom, and we're going to be eating and drinking with the glory of God, for the glory of God, with the people of God, with God himself, and there will be rewards, and therefore, it changes the way that you live now. Because he said he's going to prepare a place for us, and I don't know what all those rewards are going to look like, but I know the gospel itself is the greatest reward, and it changes the way you live right now. So when you leave here tonight, um, as gospel people, you get to redeem your workplace, your family, your neighborhood, not by finding meaning and value in it as much as with God bringing meaning and value to it. Let me simply leave with this last little story. Um, this isn't every day, but this was yesterday. Uh, as we talk about the presence of God at Maybe this will help. Yesterday, I left at 7, whatever, in the morning. Uh, Silas, my three-year-old, he, he woke up, and I saw him for a split second, gave him some checks, and patted him on the head, gave him a kiss, and then left. And I uh, had a lunch meeting. Lunch meeting um, went twice as long as I expected, so I didn't come home for lunch. Normally, I come home for lunch. I'm blessed that way. I get to see him a little bit. And, and then... Um, I had marriage counseling last night, and I had all kinds of things, so I didn't come home at my normal time, and by the time it's 8 o'clock, I'm coming home, but I hadn't been home for 12 hours, and he goes to bed by then, so I saw him right at the beginning of the day, and then at the very end of the day, and I didn't get to see him anything in between. That doesn't sit well with a dad. Hopefully, if you're in that boat, it doesn't sit well with you. You say, hmm, I feel like I'm missing out a little bit. And again, it's not every day, but it was yesterday. And I asked him this question before I put him to bed. I said, I missed you today, buddy. He said, oh. <laughs> he said, I asked him then, did you wonder where I was today? And he said, no. And I said, why? And he said, Daddy, I know you're at work. he just knows I work a lot. And I thought, because hmm. when I was at work for 12 hours, I was thinking about him. I was probably telling a story or two about him. I was thinking about ways that when I came home, I could serve him and his mama. But at the end of the day, I wasn't actually with him. Some of us will leave here tonight. And when I talk about the presence of God to you, 
What that simply means is I'm going to think about God. I'm maybe even going to share some stories about what God has done in this Bible. I'll maybe even serve God. But let me ask you, at the end of this day, at the end of this life, are you actually spending any time with God? So I'll pray and let you go because it sounds like you got something to do. Let's pray.